I invite you to kneel with me. Let's have a, a season of prayer together. We have a lot to pray for, don't we? We serve a God that can provide for all of it, though, don't we? Our most heavenly and kind and merciful God in heaven, we come before You again on our knees and we praise You. We praise You that You care so intimately for each one of us. You esteem us so often better than Yourself. It's a mystery that, uh, that we can't comprehend is this, this love, this incredible love shown to us who are so unworthy. We thank You so much for Jesus that You provided a way to adopt us back into the family again, to save us from our sins and the penalty thereof. We're so thankful that Jesus chose to come here to lower Himself, not just in leaving heaven, uh, but becoming one of us and to remain as one of us for all eternity. We thank Jesus so much for His love, His righteous life as an example to us, His death at Calvary for our sins, for His resurrection that gives us hope for victory, His ministry in heaven now. Lord, we pray for grace to help Him in that ministry. Now is the time for us to be removing and blotting out the sins from our character and our life. And Lord, we pray not only that You forgive us as we claim the blood of Jesus, but that You give us the strength and the, the, the Spirit to be that changed person. Father, we have a, a, a number of uh, problems, a number of concerns and issues within the church and within our families and those that we know and we love and we care for. We pray for them. Uh, we pray for our friend Tanadachi who had surgery and, and we praise you that uh, she has no, no cancer and now she needs employment. There are a number of us here who, who need employment. But Lord, above all things, we need Christ. And if we have Christ, the, the employment will come. The necessities will be there. Uh, let us do what You would have us to do to fulfill Your will, Lord, and not worry about the rest. Uh, Brother Tim has brought some things to our minds, uh, a church family member that we pray for. And there are so many, Lord, even ourselves. We, we pray that we won't be self-deceived and uh, think that we're righteous and uh, when we have these blots upon our characters. But we see too many who have the knowledge in their heads but not in their hearts. They don't have that conversion experience and we pray for them. We pray especially for the burning stools. There are so many uh, things uh, financially that they, they need help with and, and also, Lord, the family issues with uh, their, their sons. Give them strength and, and knowledge and a loving heart and compassion so that they, their children can see Jesus in them. Uh, the uh, Jeanette's insurance agent's grandson, who is three years old and his name's Mark and has these defects, Lord, we pray that you will be very near to, to this young one and the family. 
Uh, we have family members too, Lord, who are caught up in some error and some real fanatical issues. And, and we pray that you will be very near to them and fight the devil on their behalf and surround them with a holy influence that they may be pricked at heart and see the error of their ways. Uh, Tim's friend Joe, who's traveling, has a granddaughter named Madeline who's 10 months old and she's not eating properly. And Lord, we know that you are the great physician that you can aid in this situation. And uh, Lord Jerry Barfels, her, her son may not have employment. May these be situations where they can be drawn to your throne and come to know you and give their life to you. The same with her daughter as well. And uh, Lord, I pray for our church group here that we will become more and more united in spirit and in truth and reaching souls for the kingdom. Lord, forgive us our sins and help us by grace to keep not only this day holy, but to walk in holiness, making right choices. May we reflect the character of Jesus in our life to others. Give me the words to speak this morning, Lord. And uh, may it edify the congregation, I pray, in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Again, I welcome everyone here. It's good to see you all on this Holy Sabbath day. I miss the ones who aren't here. And uh, I pray that God will be with them. When I was very young, my maternal grandparents moved in with us. And uh, it was kind of strange at first. But it gave my younger brother and I my older siblings were pretty much on their way out of the home. Uh, but it gave my younger brother and I a, a chance to get to know my grandparents better. My grandmother was blind. But the way she lived around us, for the most part anyway, you would have hardly known it. It's rather, it was rather an amazing experience. After a while, it got to where she could tell, and my family knows this, I've told them this before, um, she got to tell who was coming into the house just by the way they carried themselves. And even though we tried to fool her sometimes, probably more times than not, uh, she could always tell who, who it was. So even though she had lost the sight of her eyes, she could still see by our words and the way we behaved. She could use her other senses to see who we were and we were always amazed uh, to uh, find out how she could tell the difference between us. Now, like I said, we were very young. And uh, this reminded me, well, actually, as I was thinking about the last Passover where Jesus was trying to prepare His disciples for His departure, it reminded me of the situation with my grandmother and how she could always tell who we were. But I want to go to John 14. And talking about this last Passover, we, we look at it here in fourteen, chapter 14. Judas had left the supper. Jesus began to tell the disciples um, that He would be leaving them. 
and that they could not go. He gives them a new commandment. You remember? He says, you're to love one another as I have loved you. And he, he tries to comfort them and he tells them that he would be returning. That's in the first part of John 14. I'll be returning to receive you. For where I go, you know, there you will be. And in verse 3 he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's a promise that we can hang on to, isn't it? That is the blessed hope, isn't it? That he's going to be coming back. You know, the disciples, sometimes we, we may wonder, how is it that they made certain choices? I mean, they were with Jesus. And they saw Him face to face. They slept with Him. They walked with Him. They ministered with Him. We have His Word. We don't see Him face to face. But one day we will. Oh, friends, I look forward to that day. We can see Him face to face. He says in verse 4, And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? We, don't, we really don't know where you're going. Kind of an admission there, isn't it? That's when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, if ye had known me. It's like I said, it's remarkable. Three and a half years. And he says, if ye had known me. Ye should have known my Father. And from henceforth ye know Him and have seen Him. That's interesting, isn't it? You have known Him. You've seen Him. You imagine the expression on the faces of the disciples? We have? Where? When? And here Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. That'll settle the issue. Just show us the Father. He was looking for some glorious event, you know. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. <laughs> if you're not going to believe my words, believe my works. I think that Jesus made a very important statement to Philip, who had asked if they could see the Heavenly Father. Jesus said, He that hath seen me, and that's something I want, to, I want to concentrate on a little bit. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. You see, the words and the works of Jesus both bore testimony to His divinity. 
But they were still blinded too much by tradition to really see Jesus and thus to see the Father. They were steeped in false teachings. There was the traditions that they were raised with. And whether we want to admit it or not, we have been raised with traditions. We're no different. They were steeped in these false teachings of who God is. And Jesus came to reveal the truth by His life, His words, and His works. As John would later say in 1 John 4.16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Well, there had to have been a change, right? Well, if you had known me, Jesus had once said, but here John now says, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. When we come to know Jesus more and more, we will come to know our Father in heaven more and more. Not because, as some believe and teach, they are one and the same being, but because they have the same righteous attributes, the same character traits. From the devotional book entitled This Day with God, page 272, it says, We cannot, by searching, find out God. But He has revealed Himself in the character of Christ, who is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of His person. That's remarkable. If we desire a knowledge of God, we must be Christ-like. That's a rather profound statement. In order to be Christ-like, we must know, love, and conform to His character. What are the character traits of Jesus? In Exodus 24, in verse 12, we read, And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. God called him up there for a specific purpose. He wanted to, to reveal more and more of who he was. If you turn to chapter 32 and verse 16 of Exodus... It says, The tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. God in the wilderness, here at Sinai, was going to reveal Himself to His people. Too many heard thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes. There were some who heard that still small voice. God has always wanted to be near us. He created us in Adam and Eve and walked with us. Sin caused a divide, didn't it? 
And since that time, He's been trying to draw closer and closer to us. And we know, because we understand prophecy, He's going to have a people that walk with Him. I want to be among them. I'd like all to be among you, that number. What is it that we find on these tables of stone that God gave to Moses? People say, well, it was a law. Surface readers see a law. What do we see below the surface? Paul said in Romans 7 and verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So, it is spiritual in nature, in that, as Paul later said, or he said just before this, he said, it is holy, just, and good. And in that, it requires an obedience that can be rendered only by those who are spiritual and have the fruits of the Spirit. Jesus says in John 4 and verse 24, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in what? Spirit and in truth. You know, as an infinite spirit being, God is not subject to the same limitations that we are. We're finite mortals, aren't we? And so consequently, consequently, it's not so much concerned... God is not concerned with visible places, forms of worship. He's more concerned with the spirit in which we do worship. That is, in all sincerity with the highest faculties of our mind and our emotions, applying the principles of truth to our heart. That's what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Here's a quote from the Signs of the Times, June 9, 1881. God's law is spiritual. It takes cognizance of our most secret thoughts, purposes, and motives. The judgment, the will, and the affections must be controlled by its precepts. Its principles require love to God and to man. Without this love, external compliance will not be accepted. This law is the standard of Christian character. It's the standard. Why is it the standard of Christian character? Well, if you read in Christ Objects Lessons, you'll find that God's law is the transcript of His character. In the beginning, God created us in His very own image. When man sinned, the image we were created in became distorted became unlike God. It is God's desire to recreate in each of us His image. And for thousands of years, that's what He's been trying to do. The law is a reflection of that image. Jesus prayed in John 7, 
17 that we would be one with God again. Reflecting His image again. In John 17 verses 21 to 23... Notice what Jesus was praying here. John 17, beginning with verse 21. And Jesus prayed, He said, that they all may be one. As Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in Us. That the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. And the glory which Thou gavest Me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and Thou in Me, that they may be made perfect in one. Boy, there's that, there's that P word. People kind of get hung up on, don't they? Perfect. And that the world may know that Thou hast sent Me and hast loved them as Thou hast loved Me. This was the prayer of Jesus for us. We see that the law is a transcript of God's character. And we're told in Testimonies to the Church, Volume 5, the thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character. The thoughts and feelings combined. Character is revealed in some very unsavory circumstances. That's really a lot of times when true character is revealed, isn't it? So we have people that we pray for. We have uh, a list of, of issues. Each one of us does. And again, it's an opportunity to reveal our character. Not to God. And maybe not so much to others. But to us. You see, God has to point out where our flaws are. We can't work with Him and correcting Him if we don't know what they are. If we don't see Him. If we don't accept it as the truth. Now considering that the thoughts and the feelings combine make up the character and that the Ten Commandments are the character traits of God, it makes sense then that God's law is a copy of His mind and will. That's from Bible Echo, April 16, 1894. God's law is a copy of His mind and will. That's an incredible statement. We start to see more and more how God was wanting to reveal Himself to us, don't we? Too many people say, God laid out these laws and they're a bunch of don'ts. Thou shalt not. And many times I see them as promises. When I walk with God and He's in me, I will not do that. Like the marriage vows. Exactly. So in order for us to have the character of Christ, to be Christ-like, like she said, we must become obedient to the law of God in our thoughts and in our emotions. We have to have the higher power controlling the lower. Right? Now to do this, we must have a mind like that of Christ. Jesus came to this world in a body like ours, facing the same temptations we face. 
actually many more than we will ever face. And He overcame every one of those temptations to prove to all that man can indeed reflect the image of God again. Again, from Christ's Objects Lessons, page 315. The life of Christ on earth was a perfect expression of God's law. And when those who claim to be children of God become Christ-like in character, they will be obedient to God's commandments. Then the Lord can trust them. Isn't that an interesting concept? Did you know that before we're allowed to go into the city that Jesus is preparing for us, we have to earn that right? We have to earn God's respect and trust because sin will not arise a second time. We have to be one with Him. When we're one with Him, that trust is being earned. That right is being earned. Do you know that? I often kind of thought about that. Boy, that's rather strong language. For God to say they have a right to enter into the city. Wow. You know, in our world here, we, we rise up so many times and say, oh, that's against our rights. You know, we really don't have any rights. Have you ever thought about that? God's the one who issues rights, isn't He? I shouldn't say we have no rights. We have little rights. Rights that we have come from God. God has given us the right to choose. We have it because He gave it. There will be a time when we will have a right to enter in and eat of the tree of life. I hope to be there. But it's a matter of trust. God has to trust us to be a citizen of heaven, to be a citizen in the kingdom. And the only way for that to happen is Christ has to be within Like she says, then the Lord can trust them to be of the number who shall compose the family of heaven. So let's reflect upon the character traits of God found in the Ten Commandments. And let's emulate them by faith, by grace, with the aid of the Spirit of God. Amen? I want to go to Exodus chapter 20. Now I'm not going to spend a tremendous amount of time, you know, I mean... uh, You guys see time differently than I do. (laughs) That's pretty apparent. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I may say I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, and you may think that I spend too much time on it. I don't know. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Let's, Let's do a little looking into these character traits, shall we? And see what we can find about God here. Verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know, the Creator is like no other. He's a personal God. He loves each one of us individually, and not just as a group or as a church. He knows us intimately. And we are to know Him just as personally. 
Jehovah, the eternal, self-existent, uncreated one. Himself the source and sustainer of all things is alone entitled to supreme reverence and worship because He made us. He keeps us. He sustains us. When we look at this, what do we see? What trait do we see? We see love, don't we? The Creator is a loving God that saves us from ourselves. Saves us from the bondage of sin. You know, I uh, I use Facebook, try to the best of my ability as a as a tool uh, for witnessing. Again, and you guys, I've probably shared the story a lot of times. I, I I've had a burden for my classmates from years ago to try to reach them with the truth. And I didn't know how to go about it. And then my wife and daughter were, hey, Facebook, hey, Facebook, you know, use this. You need to get on this. And I, I don't want to get into that stuff, you know. But then the Lord spoke to me. He said, you know, you can reach people with this. And I, I virtually am in, am, I'm in touch with almost all my old classmates. My class was like 300 and some people. Where before I wouldn't have been. I was thinking of writing a letter, but I knew that wouldn't probably... You can't get stuff across very much with printed page, but I'm able to talk with them individually, see, on this. And one of my classmates made a statement about... And, and, and people, they put these statuses on, you know, they, it's like they try to philosophize, you know. And she quoted something from the Dalai Lama, you know, which in and of itself was a good statement. You know, but I had to. I had to comment. But there is only one Savior. You know, these other people they 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 make good statements. They make you know pronounce good things. But there's only one Savior. Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus, you see love. God is the only God, the Creator God, that can back up His claim to save us from the bondage of sin. And so we owe honor to Him only. We are to have His love abiding in our heart. That's something we should, Brother Tim, pray for earnestly every moment is to have that love in our heart. To love others better than ourselves. Let's go on. Exodus 20, verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I... The Lord thy God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. That's just a result, isn't it? And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and what? Keep my commandments. God is a jealous God in that 
he refuses to share his glory with idols. Why should he? So in that respect, he's a jealous God. Nobody else's due worship. He declines the worship and service of a divided heart as well. Jesus says, I have to have your entire heart, your entire affections. Wasn't it Jesus who said, no man can serve two masters? This trait speaks of fidelity and loyalty. The Creator God is ever faithful to those who love Him and obey Him. In 1 Samuel 2.30, the Lord says, For them that honor Me, I will honor. And they that despise Me shall be lightly esteemed. Because of their choice. And you brought up the marriage vows. We were talking about the Bible says that when a man and a woman marry, the two become one. The same is true when we give our hearts to God. We become one with Him and this oneness will be seen in our life because the love of God constrains us. It pushes us to reveal Him. When we bow down to idols, whether physically or in our hearts, we have broken our marriage vow to God. We have committed spiritual adultery. And God has every right to a divorce, doesn't He? That's why he says, shall be lightly esteemed. I think the trait that at least that pops out to me, and, and, and believe me, the English language does not do justice to what God says. But I see faithfulness in this. This character trait. God is devoted and loyal to those who put their entire life in His care. He's faithful and we are to be faithful too. Amen. Exodus 20 verse 7 Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. The name of God is a symbol. It's a symbol of righteousness. Notice what the Bible says about the remnant of God in Revelation 14 and verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. His name written in our foreheads. That's a symbol. From Sons and Daughters of God, page 370. Notice what she says. This name is the symbol which the apostle saw in vision and signifies the yielding of the mind to intelligent and loyal obedience to all of God's commandments. Isn't that wonderful? The trait that that we see here, I believe, is righteousness. The name of God is a description of the entire character of the Godhead. God wants to adopt us as His children and give us His name, doesn't He? Give us His righteousness? Consistently accepting the conditions of His adoption by faith keeps us from taking His name 
in vain each moment of each day. That's why when we say, you know, you hear me say, keep looking up. What do I mean by that when I say that? Keep looking up. You know, if you keep looking up, you're going to run into a wall or something, aren't you? So I don't mean just walk around looking up. What do I mean by that? Keep looking up. Keep your eyes on Christ. Single. Focus. Focus. Single. Your mind. Focus to the glory of Christ. Keep looking up to Him. Pray without ceasing. Exactly. Let's go to Exodus 20, verse 8. Here we read about the Sabbath. Gee, what can we learn about God from the Sabbath? Right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Oh, He's the Creator, isn't He? The sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Can I ask you a question? Why did God create the Sabbath? I mean, he surely He was probably just wore out, wasn't He? No. Wasn't? Why did God create the Sabbath? To spend it with us? For man? He wanted to have a very special relationship with man. So He created a day specifically to spend time with us. So if you keep the Sabbath, you're spending time with God and He's spending time with you. Testimonies to Ministers, page 137. The Lord draws very nigh to His people on the day that He has blessed and sanctified. From Patriarchs and Prophets, page 48. God saw that a Sabbath was essential for man, even in paradise. He needed to lay aside His own interests and pursuits for one day of the seven that He might more fully contemplate the works of God and meditate upon His power and goodness. He needed a Sabbath to remind Him more vividly of God. Isn't that something? More vividly of God. And to awaken gratitude because all that He enjoyed and possessed came from the beneficent hand of the Creator. The Sabbath points us back, doesn't it? Points us back to a time when the world was perfect. I don't know that we can contemplate what that is. (laughs) What perfect is. But we see some mighty, creative works today, don't we? It reminds us that the Creator will one day make all things new. God stands ready to restore within our hearts and our lives, as as I mentioned earlier, His own image just as it was in the beginning. The only way to really keep the Sabbath holy is as Brother Tim mentioned, is to be holy. Meaning that you live 
all the other character traits of Christ. All nine. From God's Amazing Grace, page 156. True sanctification is harmony with God, oneness with Him in character. It is received through obedience to those principles that are the transcript of His character. And the Sabbath is the sign of obedience. So many people miss this. They see it, they're surface readers, they see it as a commandment, a a duty that I must do. I, I have to just quit working on this day. I have to go to church. I have to give my tithes. You know, I keep looking at the clock. When's the Sabbath? When's sundown? When's sundown? When's it? Boy, as soon as sundown hits, buddy, I'm off and... Saturday keepers. <laughs> I don't like the Sabbath to end. <laughs> I don't know about you. I love the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. It's a, isn't it a day you look forward to? Man, as soon as the Sabbath's over, it's like, oh man, it's another six days for the Sabbath. <laughs> you know? The Sabbath is the sign of obedience. He who from the heart obeys the fourth commandment will obey the whole law. He is sanctified through obedience. If you're at variance with your brother, make it right before the Sabbath. If you have a darling, delicious, secret sin, go to the Lord because you can't keep the Sabbath holy with that stained in your character. I so appreciate God. I so appreciate Him. I was searching for God years ago. And all these other pretended gods that I was shown, even named Jesus, they didn't save me from anything. What they did was say, when He comes, He'll take care of you. I need help right now. I need saved right now. The Creator saves you right now. There's no waiting around till He returns. He's here now to save us. Amen? You know, in this commandment we see, what is the trait we see? Well, I, I took the word holiness. That's what I see about God in the fourth commandment. Holiness. The one who enters into the true Sabbath Spirit of the Sabbath and its observance will qualify for receiving the seal of God. Which is the divine recognition that the character of Jesus is reflected perfectly in your life. Being holy as He is holy. So what Jesus says to us, Be thou perfect as thy Father in heaven is perfect. People so misunderstand what that means. There is nothing that we can do to be holy. It's all what Jesus has done that makes us holy. Do we believe it? That's the question, isn't it? Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. When we honor 
our father and our mother, we will also honor those in authority over us. As well as honor God. You know, I think when every time I see this, and I, I think about this, the fifth commandment, the life of Joseph always pops into my mind. He decided, no matter what his brothers had done to him, he decided that he was going to stay true to God. You know, the life of a slave, I mean, it was like a death decree. And he learned to be meek and humble under the authority over him. And in that, he honored God. Too often, again, surface readers see it as, well, I just have to respect my... I don't have to really go along with it in my heart. Is that what God's saying? Do you truly honor someone if you don't do it from your heart? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25? He said, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. When we honor our parents, we honor God. When we honor those in authority over us, we honor God. Now remember that to God we owe the first four commandments. If the authority over us wants to break that relationship between us and God, we stay with God, don't we? They have no authority over that. But the other six, they can have. From Signs of the Times, February... I'll get it right. February. 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 28, 1878. Those who have been taught to obey and honor their earthly parents will the more readily yield to the claims of their heavenly parent and honor the Creator of man and of the world. You see, when children are being raised, the parents are as God to them. And it's so important for parents to know God and have God in their hearts, to reflect God to their children. Satan knows and understands this. You know, the more the most powerful witness to the world of God is a Christian family. That's why there's such attacks on the family unit. Satan knows this. Satan knows that we learn true church organization from the family unit. He knows that if you have a powerful a, a Christian family, there's a powerful witness to the truth in the three angels' messages. He can't have that. That's why we see such an attack. That's why we see such a mix between the male and the female and the genders. It's an attack on the family unit. It's an attack on God's character. See? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17 and 18, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I don't know. When I read that, it makes me emotional. (laughs) From Testimonies to the Church, Volume 6. 
page 55. Christ's favorite theme was the paternal character and abundant love of God. The paternal character. This knowledge of God was Christ's own gift to men. And this gift He has committed to His people to be communicated by them to the world. What I see in this this command, this trait, the trait I see is paternal. God is paternal. means He has a vested interest. Even in nature, you don't get between a mother and her offspring. Isn't that true? Yes, Sharon's back here. Absolutely. God is our Father. He has a paternal character trait. He's a loving and caring parent unto us. He provides for all our needs if we are willing to acknowledge the relational boundaries that He has. He teaches us by His example and deals with us as a loving parent would. One that has our best interest at heart. Even when we need disciplining, it's for our best interest. And for those who do not have parents or maybe have unloving parents, God says that He is your loving parent. You can trust and love Him. Exodus 20, verse 13, Thou shalt not kill. This command deals with respecting life. All life. According to Strong's Concordance, the word translated as kill is the Hebrew word ratzak, which means to dash in pieces, kill, or especially murder. This, I think, is better rendered as thou shalt not murder. What does murder mean? Webster's puts it, yeah, there's a premeditation to it, isn't there? Webster's puts it that way. The act of unlawfully killing a human being with premeditated malice. God is by nature. Well, we read in John that God is love. right? God is by nature loving, caring, merciful. He's long-suffering. He's gracious. It is alien, really, to His character to inflict pain and suffering, punishment and death upon His creatures. But at the same time, He will by no means clear the guilty. It's interesting, isn't it? The cross of Christ describes for us how much God detests sin. It also describes how much God loves us. What do we see in this commandment? God is compassionate. He's compassionate. He loves, values, and respects all life. He gave us the ability to make our own choice. Even when He knows better than we. He does not unjustly shorten life. He does not have a spirit of hate or revenge. He does not neglect the needy or suffering. He does not murder. God is compassionate. You know, throughout the Gospels, you'll see where it says Jesus was, showed compassion upon them. He was compassionate. 
Luke 9.56 says, For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Exodus 20, verse 14, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Just as a man and woman become one when married, a person and God become one when the person is given their whole heart to Him and is baptized. Not one physically, right? I mean, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? But one mind and purpose, one heart and soul in essence. When we give ourselves to God vowing to be faithful, He comes into us and works a miracle. Do you know that? He works a supernatural miracle to transform us into a righteous being after His likeness. That's what sanctification's about, isn't it? This is the goal of Jesus. To return us into His image of purity. But it takes our cooperation for God always gives us the choice. 1 John 3, verses 1-3 to 3 says... Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. That would be sons and daughters. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. (laughs) Beloved, now are we the sons of God and doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, I like this, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. And that's what I see in this. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's the character trait of purity. God is pure in heart, undefiled and faithful to His vows. It is comforting to know that God never defiles, isn't it? Exodus 20.15, Thou shalt not steal. Do you know for society to exist at all, this principle of respecting the property of others must be safeguarded? You know, you can pick up a newspaper today and you read time and time again where this is broken. This is a heavenly principle. And it's broken. The government infringes upon property rights consistently today. In Indiana, sad to say, sad to say, the Supreme Court ruled that police officers can come right in your home regardless if they are keeping the law or not. You know, the founders of this country... They knew God. They knew the light that they had. The framers of the Constitution. You can see it. You can see heavenly principles in that. They knew there had to be a respect for property. If there is no respecting the property of others, there is no security and no protection. All would be anarchy without such respect. To each his own. Right? We are to treat our neighbor fairly. And beloved, if we love our neighbor as Jesus loves us, we will treat them fairly. Paul said, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. (laughs) 
Romans 13.10. He also said, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Some people forget the with him part. What I see here is a character trait of generosity. God is an unselfish giver and this is a principle that God wants to ingrain into all of us. And it can't be done without the living Christ in our hearts. You know, most of the Christian religions today, Jesus is dead still on that cross. Oh, they may celebrate Easter, but He's dead. I serve a living God. One who is alive and wants to have eternal life embedded in our hearts and minds. God is the only one immortal. If He lives within us, we become immortal. I don't want the story of Christ. I don't want the fleeting thought of Christ. But I want the living Christ who changes us into His image by grace day by day. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Exodus 20 verse 16 says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You know, the Word of God says that Jesus is the faithful and what witness? True. He's the faithful and true witness, Revelation 3.14. He's not a false witness, is He? Speaking of Jesus, Peter says, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Guile means craft, deceit, subtlety, trickery. Truth is of God. Deception in every one of its forms is of Satan. Speaking of the Creator God, Moses said, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is He. Deuteronomy 32.4 The psalmist says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all His works are done in truth. As we read out of John 14 earlier, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I see truthfulness in this, this trait, the trait of truthfulness in this commandment. We can trust what God says. And friends, you can hear me tell you that God is trustful, that He is truth, but how do you really know? You have to taste and see, as Deb's saying, that the Lord is good. You have to have the experience. God keeps His Word. He cannot be forced to bear false witness or lie. God said it, and I believe it. Because I've tasted it. I've experienced it. Exodus 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, 
nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Beloved, God has righteous desires, not unrighteous ones. The seed of sin does not exist with God, but it does. But God does covet our heart. Did you know that? Paul said one time, I covet your prayers. There are some things that are righteous to covet. God covets our heart, not because He has no heart, but because He does have one. A heart that loves us. He wants to save us from sin and selfishness. He is our provider in all things and He wants to take care of us for all eternity. In Jeremiah 24 and verse 7 we read, And I will give them a heart to know Me. What was it Jesus said? If you had known Me. There's a statement. And I will give them a heart to know Me that I am the Lord. And they shall be My people and I will be their God for they shall return unto Me with their whole heart. Hmm. Well, the English word I could find here was contentment. In Genesis, it tells us that when God looked at all He had created, He saw that it was very good. God was satisfied, content, and at peace. And those who have the mind of Christ will share in that same satisfaction and be content and at peace. We're to be content with where we are and what we have. God provides it all. You know, I've read visions that Ellen White had where she was taken off to heaven. And in these visions, she saw and she spoke to Jesus in many of them. And on some occasions when trying to describe what she saw and what she heard, she has stated that there were no words to describe it. <laughs> there were no words that she could find to, to give witness to what she saw. Just how do you describe such a place? You know, you, we read you know, prophecy and these visions that Daniel had and visions that, that John had and how do they describe these things? They do the best they can. How do you describe God? is Paul who said, we see through a glass darkly. <laughs> Satan has distorted the character of God, hasn't he? In an effort to share with us the truth of who he is, God wrote ten extremely descriptive words on two tables of stone. These words give us a glimpse of God, a glimpse of his mind, a glimpse of his will and his character. But too many still could not understand the words. Too many see through the glass darkly. So God sent His Son. He sent His Son to our world to describe to us His true character traits. What is the description we see of God in the life of Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus obeyed the law, the Ten Commandments, perfectly, didn't He? Because they are the character of His Father and His will as well. 
when we see Jesus, we get the real life definition of the ten words written on stone tables. We see the Father perfectly revealed in the life of Christ. We see ten very descriptive attributes of God. And like I said, the English language doesn't do it justice. So, I mean, look up synonyms or, you know. (laughs) But we see love. We see that God is faithful. We see that He's righteous. He's holy. He's paternal. He's compassionate. He's pure, generous, truthful, and content. From Christ Objects Lessons again, page 314. The truth is to be planted in the heart. It is to control the mind and regulate the affections. The whole character must be stamped with the divine utterances. Every jot and tittle of the Word of God is to be brought into the daily practice. He who becomes a partaker of the divine nature will be in harmony with God's great standard of righteousness, His holy law. This is the rule by which God measures the actions of men. This will be the test of character in the judgment. Some say that the law has been done away with. That really grieves me. It tells me that God is dead to them. They just don't see it. When they say it was nailed to the cross, Jesus is dead to them. And that's sad. It means that His character is dead to them and we see it in their life, don't you? Oh, you don't have to keep the law. Isn't that what they're saying? Jesus is dead to them? Did you know that God wants to write His character traits into your heart and minds to help you remember? Hebrews 10, 16 and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. To dwell upon Jesus and His life of unselfish love and righteousness. And you know what happens? You see the Father. That the Godhead is one. As you dwell upon Christ, you'll be changed into His likeness. You'll be molded into His image. His character will be reproduced in you. And when He returns, you will live forever with Him. Friends, that's a hope that we can hang on to. I'll close with this. This is from Reflecting Christ, page 310. As the mind dwells upon Christ, the character is molded after the divine similitude. The thoughts are pervaded with a sense of His goodness, His love. We contemplate His character and thus He is in all our thoughts. His love encloses us. If we gaze even a moment upon the sun in its meridian glory, when we turn away our, our eyes, the image of the sun will appear in everything upon which we look. Thus it is when we behold Jesus. Isn't that a great example? Everything we look upon reflects His image, the sun of righteousness. We cannot see anything else or talk of anything else. His image is imprinted upon the eye of the soul and affects every portion of our daily life, softening and subduing our whole nature.
by beholding, we are conformed to the divine similitude, even the likeness of Christ. To all with whom we associate, we reflect the bright and cheerful beams of His righteousness. We have become transformed in character, for heart, soul, mind are irradiated by the reflection of Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. Here again, there is the realization of a personal, living influence dwelling in our hearts by faith. You know, my grandmother, she could see us clearly, though she was blind. She could see who we were by our words and our works. And like her, we can see our Heavenly Father by the words and works of Christ. And more than that, we can be changed into His likeness by beholding the life of Christ. May we always keep, friends, the character of Jesus in view and strive, as Jesus said we must strive, to emulate Him in all we think and say and do. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do thank You so very, very much for the Holy Sabbath day. This chance that we have to come together apart from our labors and our cares and spend precious time with each other and You. We so appreciate these hours. Lord, may we make the best of them by grace. We pray, Lord, that You will continue to pour out blessings upon us on this day as we study the life of Jesus and we come to know You better. May we be changed moment by moment into a righteous character the character of Jesus, our Savior. Please be with those who couldn't be with us today. Bless them, Lord, and heal them. And may we keep this day holy. We have to be holy to do it. May we keep this day holy in what we think and say and do. We humbly ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.